Please be seated. Well, today we have a special treat. Um, Susan Radeke uh, will be preaching from John 1. Susan Radeke uh, has been on staff with Emmanuel Anglican from the very beginning of our church. She is our director of liturgy. She helps shape um, our liturgical life together, and as well as overseeing uh, the membership process um, and, uh, and also uh, adult education, which is in formation. Um, as we grow in our discipleship, uh, Susan is leading up efforts to, uh, to develop a teaching ministry here at Emmanuel Anglican. She's also one of our preachers, and we're so glad to have her bringing with us uh, John 1 today. Susan, please come up. Well, good morning. Whoops. Turn on the microphone. Good morning and Merry Christmas. Um, as Father Aaron mentioned, we are still in um, Christmas Tide, the second Sunday. Um, so, for those of you keeping track at home, um, this is the tenth day of Christmas, which is ten Lords leaping. For what that's worth. <laughs> um, if you were here last week, you may have noticed that our gospel text today is the same as last week's. Um, Pastor Matt Woodley and I um, arranged this uh, beforehand so that we'd have some continuity. Um, in our Christmastide sermons, um, realizing that there are dozens and dozens of meaningful sermons packed into this passage, um, we hope that maybe we'd find at least two of them. Um, the truths and themes here in the opening words of the Gospel of John are revealed so artistically that we can think of them as several different types of art forms. The ancients read this passage as a hymn or a song, and as Josh and Aaron illustrated, we can hear two different voices uh, in that song. Um, a more mature, elegant, stately, poetic voice, contrasted with a voice that is much humbler and more human. And Aaron did a great job of that. <laughs> um, and you can even see in your translation um, that some of the words in this humble voice are actually kind of shoved in there in parentheses. So there's a big contrast between these voices. Um, if we imagined um, these words, this prologue, as a tapestry, it would be one mostly woven with strands of gold and silver, of ebony and scarlet and twilight. There's so much richness um, in theology about Christ. Um, but we'd also see woven intricately into that pattern, again, something humbler. Uh, picture something like a rough, brown, hempy twine that contributes to that design as well. And we can also think of this passage as a meal. I frequently think of scripture as a meal that is uniformly healthy and nutritious and often delicious, but not always uniformly pleasing or appealing. Um, and this passage has both sweet and bitter for us this morning. Now, we don't have time to even touch briefly on all the rich threads in this text, but we are going to pull out and look more closely at just a few of those. Um, we're going to look at some of what this text teaches about the unique worthiness of Jesus in how he made the world and how he connects uniquely with the Father and how he connects uniquely with us regular human beings as well. We'll talk about how he entered the world and how the world responded to him. We'll deal with the painful realities of the darkness in the world and in our hearts. And finally, we'll pay particular attention to how we can imitate that ordinary, humble, human witness of John the Baptist as he imitates the humble obedience of Jesus in leading us into intimacy with the Father. 
Before we jump in, let me briefly distinguish between the two Johns we're talking about in case you're less familiar with this. Um, there's the John who's the John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist is a cousin of Jesus who baptized people as part of his ministry. He's kind of an unusual fellow. Um, and that is the John who's named in this passage, and he's the John we're focusing on. But the other John that you'll hear me refer to is the fellow we believe to be the writer of the Gospel of John, a beloved disciple of Jesus who wrote the words that we're studying. So jumping in, we'll begin at the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. This is the first thread we're pulling out to highlight the utterly unique worthiness of Jesus as he made all things. All things made through him. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. That means that literally everything we see, touch, smell, taste, and hear is either directly or indirectly a result of the original creative work of Jesus. He made everything. Now, obviously, and particularly for those of us who live our lives day in and day out in large cities, um, many or most of the things we touch have also been processed by human hands. Um, but consider for a moment that every bit of everything around us originally came to us through the creative and loving hands of Jesus. Even things that have been twisted for our harm still have been in the presence of our loving Lord. In Colossians 1, there's another hymn very similar to this one that speaks even more specifically about this creative work. By Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. These passages together suggest that not only do we owe our bodies and our whole environment to the original work of Jesus, but we're also dependent on Jesus at every moment to actively hold all things together. The universe would fall to pieces or fly apart without the active presence of God in our physical bodies and environment. The next strand that we're going to pull out is how the worthiness of Jesus is expressed in his unique connection with us ordinary human beings and with God the Father. I'll read verses 14 and 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, the only Son, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has made him known. Until the very moment of the incarnation, until the moment the Word became flesh, no human being was able to look at God and live. Now, Moses came pretty close. He got to see God's backside and lived. But until that first Christmas and the intimate miracle of childbirth, no human being could bear to see the glory of God. When the creator of the universe humbled himself and took on the flesh of an ordinary man, only then were we able to look at his face and live. And as to Jesus' unique relationship to the Father, um, let's look carefully at the phrase, the only son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. Um, hey, me. Through a bit of an error. Jesus, my superstar. 
It helps too. It's a plate. Hey, Serge, I'm not skilled enough to answer your question during the sermon, but I'll talk I to you afterwards go. happily. We will believe in God for real. Blessings to you, Serge. God bless you. Bless you, Serge. Um, so that phrase, the bosom of the Father, um, we kind of, through an error in putting the bulletin together, you have kind of a mashup of a couple different translations. The first part is ESV. That last verse is the RSV. Um, some translations render that last verse as saying that Jesus is at the Father's side or in closest relationship with the Father. But I think the translations that show us the picture of Jesus resting on the bosom, the chest of the Father, give the clearest vision of what those more abstract phrases are trying to capture. This is a picture of profound intimacy, affection, trust, and honor. And it gives us great insight into the kind of family relationship that the father and the son share. This phrase, the bosom of the father, historically is connected to a few different thoughts. Um, In regular human terms, the bosom of the father refers to the universal custom of parents. Um, who will take up a child into their arms and carry them when they need affection or comfort or they're just too tired to walk. In Luke, um, the Gospel of Luke chapter 18, we read that angels carry into the afterlife a poor leper named Lazarus where he rests in the bosom of Abraham. Abraham's bosom became a symbol of the place of comfort and eternal repose after a life of suffering and exile. So we can imagine Jesus returning to the bosom of the Father, sitting at his right hand after um, his, his death and his resurrection. And finally, in Middle Eastern culture, in ancient Middle Eastern culture anyway, is the custom of people to eat meals, reclining, kind of half lying down, with their heads toward the table and their feet angled away. And at a feast, the guest of honor was always seated next to the host. And so if that guest tilted his head back, he would find himself resting on the bosom of the host on his chest. And this was a position of special honor and importance. So all of these ideas are wrapped up when we see Jesus resting in the bosom of the Father and coming to us from the bosom of the Father. Now from this delightfully sweet truth in this picture, we move towards something that's terribly bitter. In the middle of this passage, the Apostle John writes three short sentences that hold a universe of tragedy within them. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Some translations say he came to his home, and his own people did not receive him. Although our bodies and every cell in them were built to be temples of worship for Jesus, and although he actively labors at every moment to hold us together, and although he left that place of intimacy with his beloved Father to be with us, we, the people of the world, wanted nothing to do with him. Now, in many places in the Bible, the phrase the world simply refers to the created universe or the people of the world in a sort of general neutral sense. But in most of John's writings, it is not neutral. Here, when John refers to the world, he's actually speaking of something more dark and sinister. He means all of fallen creation, united in violent opposition to God. He means humanity not as merely indifferent to Jesus or estranged from Jesus, but dead set against him in violent rejection. Now, this view of the world 
This view of humanity and this view of myself is not a palatable one. I prefer to think of humanity and of myself in a really different light. I was raised in the Christian church, and one of the first Bible verses I memorized is a very popular one found later in the same gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I like that verse. It's a very reassuring verse. In it, I kind of hear that I'm a meaningful part of this world, and God loves me, and he loves the world, and he's for me, and he wants to be with me, and he's gone out of his way to make sure we can hang out and be together in eternal love forever and ever. It's awesome. I even have a mental picture that goes with this verse. I can see a blue and green construction paper globe, you know, the map globe, stapled to a bulletin board maybe, with construction paper cutouts of the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, and they're all holding hands, encircling the globe. And that's kind of what this verse means to me. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves the world. Yay. If I go a little further, I also find this reassuring because I am then, by implication, one of those faceless but cheerful children holding hands, (laughs) also loving the world like Jesus did. I can see myself as a participant in this global love that Jesus has. Through him, I'm also a loving person, reaching my hands out to the world. It's a sweet picture. Um, And there's some truth to it, but it's more than a little self-congratulatory. And scripture gives me reason to believe that this may not be an entirely accurate picture of what the world and I are really like. Part of what this passage that we're looking at today does for us is to push into sort of falsely optimistic views of ourselves. Um, And I think this is particularly relevant as we seek in humility and obedience and love to reach out to our neighbors whom we love and whom Jesus does love. Um, But we can get a falsely optimistic view of what this is and our role in this. Um, If we push into what Christ has to say that is bitter, we're actually then freed to really receive the good news of Jesus and the depth of his love for us and for those around us. I don't honestly think that the full extent of our rejection, of the world's rejection of Jesus, is easy to see or to realize, um, precisely because we live out our lives more or less in the darkness. Um, That's one reason that the light of Christ can feel so terribly, terribly threatening. Um, We live and breathe darkness um, and don't even realize it until that light of Christ shines on us and exposes things that we didn't want to realize were there. Um, Consider a couple of examples just in the very next chapter in John. In chapter 2, we first read of Jesus' first miracle, turning the water into wine at the wedding. And right after that, though, Jesus is throwing down with some businessmen who set up shop in the temple. This is the most physically violent we ever see Jesus getting. And this passage makes me uneasy because I feel like I would not necessarily realize that this was a big no-no. I don't realize that Jesus would respond as violently as he does. And right after that, we have a whole bunch of people believing in the name of Jesus, which is exactly what we're supposed to be doing, right? If you look um, right there in your bulletins at verse 12, that's how we get the right to become children of God, believing in his name. But scripture says that Jesus did not, for his part, entrust himself to them because he knew what was in them. Again, this is kind of an unsettling surprise. Jesus is attuned to spiritual darkness that never, ever hits my radar, but which is doing serious damage to me and the people around me. 
Now, in John chapter 3, verse 17, God says clearly, Jesus was sent to save us, not to condemn us. We can take this seriously. This is good news. But immediately afterwards, we, we learn that we actually end up condemning ourselves through our unbelief. So the light of Christ is not coming to condemn us, but we are, in fact, condemned in our unbelief. The judgment is that the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. So whether or not we are engaged in conscious, directed rebellion against him, our natural response to Jesus is rejection. Unhappily, I can assure you that even after decades of trying to follow Jesus, um, I know my interior is still riddled with these little hidden pockets of darkness um, that I keep being surprised by. Um, When Jesus took on about six or seven pounds of slippery newborn flesh and entered the world, he did not find a home in me or in you or in the world of happy folks smiling and holding hands. In literal, actual fact... He entered a world where he would be regularly hunted by angry, vicious, defensive, bitter, violent mobs. This began with King Herod, who slaughtered a whole generation of Jewish boys in Bethlehem in order to try to get Jesus. And it ended with the denial, betrayal, and desertion of his closest friends when the Roman and Jewish authorities conspired to snuff his life out. In our natural selves, you and I are right there with those folks, twisting and turning and scheming to escape the light of Jesus in our lives by any means possible. So where does this bitter truth leave us? If God is light and if we can't bear to be exposed to his light, what happens? What do we do? Well, in a very real sense, there's nothing at all that we can do in ourselves We live in bitterness and darkness, and there is no way in ourselves to be translated into sweetness and light instead. But there's an obscure passage in Exodus 15 that I want to share here briefly. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. Now, I don't know for sure what all biblical scholars think of this passage, but this is what I think. I think that Jesus is all over this passage, even though he wouldn't be born for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, I believe Jesus is that water in the desert. And when we first encounter Jesus, even in our desperate thirst, we find it to be too bitter to drink. When our deeds are dark, we hate the light. When we're obstinate or ungrateful or full of ourselves, the water of Jesus is too bitter for us to drink. So we say, we grumble, we cry out, what are we to drink? And then Moses who is the most humble man on the face of the earth, he knows what to do. He cries out to the Lord. And what does the Lord do? God shows him a piece of wood, which Moses then throws into the water, and the water becomes sweet. I believe this wood is an icon of the cross of Christ. 
In humility, Moses cries out to God, and Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, so that you and I might live. We find the water of life bitter, and Jesus dies to make that water sweet to us. Jesus didn't simply die to make the bitter water sweet. He died so that you and I would drink that sweet water and live. Jesus had a humble birth, lived a humble life, died a humble death. And if we humble ourselves to receive him, believe in his name, and drink him in, we are translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We enter the intimate, glorious life of love that Jesus and the Holy Spirit share with God the Father. Our humble witness will begin to flow out of and lead into intimacy with the Father. Now this is where things get both very practical and very exciting. We're ready to pick up and look more closely at that thread in the tapestry that is John the Baptist. Plain old, dusty old, human old John the Baptist and see where he can lead us if we're willing to follow his example. John makes many statements that each one of them could make up a whole lesson in humility. In one place, John says, speaking of Jesus, he must increase, I must decrease. In another spot, he says, I'm the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, rejoicing greatly at the bridegroom's voice. But we're going to focus for now on the humility of believing. And believing requires humble witness. Now, one fascinating thing about John the Baptist, which I don't think I would have noticed without the help of some commentators, um, but which struck me instantly, was how deeply John's witness was rooted in divine revelation as opposed to human knowledge. Um, And because I think this is a reality that's particularly meaningful to us as 21st century believers, um, I'm going to go off on a little rabbit trail here. This is just personal thoughts on this, so if you're the type of person that kind of needs a spot in the sermon to process, which already has been said, take the next 60 seconds to do that if you want to. (laughs) Um, But I find, like, we live in an era of extreme autonomy in many areas, but especially regarding what we can believe as the truth. We also live in an era of unprecedented access to data, facts, information, and arguments. And I find that there are very few obligations placed on me when it comes to matters of belief. Um, Really, the only two boundaries that I can think of that I'm usually aware of are my own perception of what reality is and what society as a whole tells me I'm allowed to believe. I think philosophers call this plausibility structure, something like that. Um, But these are the only two areas where I'm likely to feel real pushback for whatever I choose to believe. Um, For example, I can believe I have the power to defy gravity, But if my perception of reality is reasonably strong, a few broken bones might persuade me to believe differently. Um, And if my beliefs are too far outside with the world at large, or at least what my little tribe finds plausible, I'm going to feel the pressure of that as well. For example, I may believe in a God who requires me to refrain from various pleasurable acts at times that seem innocent and healthy to the world at large. But depending on the strength of my desire and the company I keep, I may very well conclude 
that I ought to believe differently about that. Uh, the court of public opinion is one of very few checks on our beliefs. And either way, there's very little in my life that will naturally orient me to live as a witness to divine revelation, which is precisely why the example of John the Baptist is so fascinating. This is where we are turning back to scripture here. Um, if we let him, John will challenge the autonomy we feel that we have over our own beliefs. He is a man who reconfigured his whole life in order to witness to something that the Father revealed to him. John's story is told in patches scattered throughout the Gospels, and we'll look at just three events, each of which underlines the role of divine revelation as a true source of knowledge for John. Number one, John the Baptist bears humble witness to Jesus while both John and Jesus were still developing in the wombs of their respective moms. I'm reading from Luke 1. Mary, Jesus' mother, arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth, John's mother. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. John actually felt he witnessed to the joy of the presence of the Lord while he was still in utero. Divine revelation, not the result of John's baby reasoning in there. Um, number two, John bears humble witness even though his own human knowledge didn't, never could fully validate or confirm the word of the one who sent him. This is reading from further along in John 1. The next day he, John, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So twice John is emphasizing, I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me revealed it to me. On the basis of this divine revelation, John rearranges his life. He reassesses his personal value. He reassesses the value of his ministry and sees himself as existing solely to bear witness to another, to the light of Christ. Thirdly, even in the moment of deepest doubt and trial, John the Baptist bore humble witness to Jesus by turning to Jesus with his doubts. Because John the Baptist was faithful to preach repentance, he ended up getting thrown in prison. In prison, he experienced a crisis of faith. Is Jesus really the Messiah? Maybe I got it wrong. Things are not going the way I expected. Um, but John does something that is touching and really, really wise here. This is reading from Matthew 11. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, to Jesus, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, 
Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Do you see what John did? Don't miss it. It's a really valuable example that he's setting for us. Even when he doubted Jesus, he took his doubts to Jesus. Jesus was the one he confided in and came to. He bore humble witness to the role of Jesus in his life, that secure, authoritative, sound, solid role of Jesus as his Lord by exhibiting dependence on him at his moment of greatest vulnerability, even when his vulnerability had to do with the identity of his Lord. So John's role in the story of Jesus is a very, very modest role. It's a humble role. It is a self-effacing role. It is the way of dying to self and living to Christ. The humble witness of John the Baptist cost him his life. Uh, John never left that prison. He ended up being executed in a particularly distasteful and disgraceful way. Um, What's really poignant to me is that his humble witness was never validated completely in his lifetime. Um, He did not get to see the resurrection of Jesus in his lifetime. But nevertheless, John the Baptist laid hold of his purpose. He came for testimony to bear witness to the light that all might believe through him. He modeled for us the humility that leads us, that leads us to become children of God. Humble witness flows out of and leads into intimacy with the Father. And no one demonstrates this more clearly than Jesus himself. Jesus, who has been dwelling in the bosom of the Father since before the beginning, was sent out from the bosom of the Father to live and die in humility so that he might rise again and gather all who are willing, all who receive and believe in his name, and carry us back with him to his place by the Father. This is the invitation of Jesus to us this morning. Follow the example of John, who follows the example of Jesus, into a posture of humble witness, receiving and believing in the name of Jesus, so that you might have the right to become a child of God. Now, humility, it's truly a beautiful thing. It also can be really abstract. Um, So before we close, I wanted to offer you some ideas for small and specific steps that you might want to take as you pursue intimacy with the Father. So these are three different suggestions. Pick one. Choose your own adventure. Um, One step towards seeking intimacy with the Father might be to take this next week and simply practice kind of basic humility. For one week, commit to avoiding self-promotion of any kind. Uh, Let someone else take credit for your work if that happens. Um, Don't get your personal brand out on social media this week. Don't defend yourself in that petty argument with your social worker or your spouse or your roommate. Instead, bear humble witness to someone else each day. Now, that could be saying something that brings attention and glory to Jesus, or it could be something that uh, just brings positive attention to your cranky bus driver, Whatever, practice practical humility this week is is one way we can pursue intimacy with God. Another way to seek intimacy with the Father is to do a little investigation of Bible passages that explicitly reference the obedience of Jesus. 
Um, humble witness is closely tied to other aspects of Christian life that can make us jittery and uncomfortable these days, like submission, obedience. Um, and this is something I've decided myself to do this week as a response to this passage. And I will, by the end of Monday, tomorrow, I'm just going to send out on listserv uh, a really short, simple set of verses that just reference how Jesus submitted himself to the Father. It's not going to be fancy. Um, basically, I'm just going to pull out a few verses and um, put them out for us to um, look at. But you can take those verses, meditate on them, and see if God wants to use that, the example of Christ, to make more room in our lives to receive Jesus into our lives. A third avenue for seeking intimacy with the Father in the light of this passage is to exercise what some Christian saints refer to as your sanctified imagination. This would involve getting into a quiet spot, getting into a prayerful mode, closing your eyes, acting Jesus to direct your imagination, and then literally picture yourself becoming like a small child, maybe a two-year-old or a three-year-old. Envision yourself climbing up into the lap of Jesus, just resting your head on his shoulder, and listen to him say, I love you. That's it. Now, some of you are familiar with the practice of exercising your sanctified ima- imaginations. Some of you might find it a little freaky. Um, I promise it's no weirder than exercising your sanctified reason, which we do all the time. Um, and if you're up for it, um, any of our prayer ministers today could help you if you want to um, do this, um, this exercise in sanctified imagination, pursuing intimacy um, with Jesus. So I, will, I know that was a lot of words, um, but three different ideas. Um, One is to just practically pursue humility, um, refrain from promoting yourself and promote others, um, investigate passages that talk about the obedience of Jesus himself to the Father, and um, creatively and imaginatively entering into intimacy with God. Um, And I'll put that out on listserv, a recap of that tomorrow too. But now I want to close with a blessing. This comes from Colossians 1. Um, right before the, the hymn that we read earlier. This is our prayer for you. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. One of the ways that we can practice this humility in the name of Jesus is to confess our faith.